It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Signal Boost. Happy solstice to all who observe. It is December 21st. It is the shortest day of the year, and we're not going to make a metaphor about that on this show. This morning, we learned the Omicron variant is now the most dominant variant, and uh, it's accounting for 70% of cases uh, nationwide. And we're getting, we're getting another COVID speech from the president I don't mean to laugh. This is something the president should do. I'm glad we are hearing from the president in this moment, but uh, we have heard from the president during this pandemic before, which is, again, not his fault. That's just how pandemics work. But today we're going to hear from him, and he intends to address the shortage of tests, which, uh, from personal anecdata, I can tell you, is a big old problem, especially in the Northeast, as everybody is scrambling to try to see family as safely as possible as plans are changing more rapidly than they have, I think, since March of 2020. Um, at least personally, that's that's how it feels. Uh, we can't find tests. <laughs> they're, they're not there. They're, uh, CVS is all out. Walgreens is all out. You can't get them online. Um, so they're dispatching a thousand military medical professional to help at overburdened hospitals and set up new federal testing sites. They're going to buy 500 million rapid tests to distribute free to the public. I don't want to get into why we weren't doing that already, but now seems like a good moment to start. Um, this is what we need in order to be able to see friends and family, which I would also argue at this point is essential. Uh, the loneliness pandemic is crushing people. People made plans for this Christmas to be able to to see the people that they love, that they have been fearful for for so long. Um, we can do this safely, provided we have the right precautions, provided we're able to take what looks like a couple of tests in the run up to seeing people, considering how quickly Omicron seems to infect the incubation period seems to be very short. Um, and it's the kind of thing where you can test a negative in the morning and then test positive at night. So the safest thing to do is to take more than one test in your run up to seeing anybody, especially if that person is elderly or immunocompromised. Um, and it's really hard to follow those guidelines when you can't find the tests. So that's at least where New York is right now. And I, I know people in this country get tired of, of hearing about New York, um, Lord knows I get tired of hearing about New York and I live in New York, but, but when it comes to this pandemic, um, it really does behoove us all to pay attention to what happens to the city that goes before us. We all know what those cities are now. I'm sitting in Brooklyn. I look at the UK. If you are sitting in LA, you should look at Brooklyn. If you look at Brooklyn right now, it's, uh, it's not good. It's, uh, it's real bad. So if you still have rapid tests in your hometown, you might want to go out and buy a pack or two. Please don't hoard. Please don't make this the toilet paper shortage of March 2020. If you've got four members in your family, maybe pick up two test kits because they've each got two in them. Please don't pick up eight or 10 <laughs> and listen to the president today at 2.30. We're going to see what he has to say about how we all need to pull together to get out of this because that is certainly uh, what's going to happen, uh, what's going to need to happen. 
In other news, we got a little more information uh, from Joe Manchin about why he felt that it was good to dash his party's hopes on Sunday by announcing he would not vote for the Build Back Better legislation. So publicly, he's saying it's the cost of the bill, but privately, apparently, he is telling his colleagues that he essentially does not trust low-income people to spend government money wisely. And if you could have cooked up an answer to make me angrier in a lab, you couldn't have done it. This is it. This is the worst. Apparently, he has told several of his fellow Democratic senators that he thought parents would waste the monthly child tax credit on drugs instead of caring for their kids, which makes me feel like Joe Manchin is even more out of touch than I assumed he was um, from his yacht named Manchin or his Maserati view. I don't think he's seeing the same kinds of people in America that I am seeing. Um, I don't think he spends a lot of time talking to his constituents because what he would find is that people are people are scared, people are nervous, and people want to take care of their families. Um, yeah, so uh, I don't know where we go from here. There's all kinds of conversations about scrapping it entirely and starting it again. Um, but this is certainly an incredibly frustrating end to what should have been a, a, a positive year with an asterisk for the Biden administration. I'm sure he did not want to end 2021 uh, with the rise of COVID being the number one story and the fall of the Build Back Better agenda being the number two. But here we are. I'm really excited that uh, we are joined this morning by one of the only people who's able to actually break this down for us. Adam Green is the president of the Progressive Campaign Change Committee and has been following this as closely as anyone. Adam, thank you so much for joining us this morning. How how are you feeling? <laughs> thank you for asking. Um... <laughs> you know, personally, not about the news or anything, just like, yeah, what's your mood like? <laughs> no, um, I, I was in, in Mexico last week with Twitter basically off and cable news basically mm. off, and it was really- God, you got that in at the last second. Oh, that was man. the week to take a vacation. Yeah, I man. Last clicks on that one. That was great. Um, come back, and needless to say, my Sunday um, was not a, 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 <laughs> <laughs> not a nice- Not the recuperative sort yeah. of day that you were expecting it to be? It wasn't the soft landing back in reality. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a cold bucket of water. Um, did you so uh, Mexico aside? Yeah. Did you did you see this coming? Uh, not quite the way it it happened. No, um, but looking back, I guess it was predictable. So, can I offer two potentially um, contrasting thoughts that I think are both true? <laughs> Please do. Um, so, you know, the first is that you know nothing that Joe Manchin utters usually makes logical or you know intellectually consistent sense. This right? is true. Um, I saw your interview yesterday morning on CNN and agree with it entirely, where your point was basically, as he's saying, he can't explain this bill to the people of West Virginia. What's actually unexplainable is, you know, charging people in an overly impoverished state $35 for insulin or $1,000 for yes. insulin instead of 35 right? Or an overly impoverished state or overly, I guess, an old, uh, very elderly state yeah. about why they can't have home care and telling every parent that their taxes are about to go up. Like that's what he should have to explain. I really agreed with you on that point. Yeah, uh, I, I think we do way too, we, we are focused way too much on the political 
fallout for Democrats. And yes, that is a massive part of the, the problem. I believe if Democrats are not electorally successful, then this country basically like goes out onto the ice flow. I get that that's important. But I don't think that's the number one story. The number one story is that people are freaking hurting and he won't help. Like, that's it. Like, pe people people are hurting and he apparently thinks that they want to do drugs instead of taking care of their kids. And I just, I'm so done with him. Sorry, that was only one point and you were gonna have yeah. another one that contradicted oh, it. Well, just to feed on that one a little bit. I mean, it's so maddening, right? I mean, the evidence is in, right? Child poverty is cut in half. Right. And this guy's talking about how people are using these checks for heroin or whatever. And it's like, this is not hypothetical. <laughs> like you want to right. undo half of children in America not being in poverty, like, why? Be, be, because a, a terrible parent or two who need help decide to use it on heroin, the rest of the kids, rest of the kids, nothing, nothing, nothing for them. Okay, got it. Right. And the irony of him saying we ha we're living through inflation, which is really like the impact on people's lives, like people are feeling inflation. So why make their child care more expensive and their right. drugs more expensive and their home care more expensive? Right. And why kill the planet while you're at it, right? Right. Like, it's a lot easier to just infuse people with money to take care of their kids than it is to solve inflation. Inflation is a global problem brought on by a series of factors that the president can't control, including the pandemic. Okay. Right. But you can mitigate. You can mitigate with all this yes. stuff and go back better. So everything he's saying is BS, basically. And whether you think it's because he's, you know, a corporate person who's looking for an excuse to do their bidding, or whether you think he's a weak man who's very easily influenced by Lindsey Graham and the Business Roundtable <laughs> and others. Either way, the stuff he's saying is just wrong and it's inscrutable. Right. That that said, <laughs> um, I've tried to analyze it and see what what the path forward is and make some sense of it. Um, which is <laughs> <laughs> Thanks then, for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so there's two silver linings I would point to. One is, you know, as someone who's kind of had my head this year, basically in two fights: the democracy fight and this economic fight. Right. You know, I see a direct parallel in the language that he used at a massive freakout moment that I think was overly freaked out about. You know, I think it was back in June or July, he penned an op-ed yep. in the West Virginia um, main paper saying, I will not vote for the For the People Act, which was, you know, the main voter protection and democracy bill at the time. And everybody was like, oh, okay, it's dead. He just killed it. And what ended up happening was we renamed the For the People Act, the, you know, Freedom to Vote Act. 80% of the Clever, people act right. went into that bill, gave Joe Manchin, you know, the um, the optics of, you know, being the main author of that bill, and he's for it now, and we, now we're up against the filibuster, but that, it might die, that bill might not pass, but it won't be because of that moment <laughs> that we right. all freaked out about. And Got it. it. Right. So what he said was, I cannot support this piece of legislation, right? right? which is what many people have said before they got an amendment, and then that it's a new piece of legislation, and, you know, you can pass it. So I, I wouldn't freak out, you know, I think, I think, you know, it, I don't want to give him too much credit, but part of being a good negotiator in general is being willing to walk away from the table. And he was kind of lashing out and pretty much saying, I'm willing to walk, give me more, which I despise him for. But, <laughs> but, but it is in fact a negotiating tactic, not a shutting yeah. of the door permanently, you, yeah. as you see it. Right. So in a bad scenario, we lose lots of stuff and have to take, you know, an eighth of a loaf. <laughs> um, but I, but I think that there is, you know, at least a 10% chance, maybe more of a better scenario that's actually becoming a better bill for progressives in some ways. And mm. All right. you know, I think cable news, a lot of cable news got wrong yesterday, what they pulled out from a 14 minute long interview that he did on West Virginia radio. And they focused on him kind of fighting with the White House and made it kind of a drama thing. Yes. But 
<laughs> did you see that on uh, cable? I absolutely right. did. Yeah. Well, I mean, he decided to explain himself on West Virginia radio, which means that everybody sort of had to pull that audio to like glean what he was feeling. And of course, you know, it, it, the political news sphere is, as it always is, obsessed with the process as opposed to the outcomes of this story. Like, I think every every news network should be in communities that are being the hardest hit by pandemic right now and talking to them about their childcare needs, you know, and let's let's go to let's go talk to some West Virginians. They're 48th in public health. They're 50th in public education. Let's go talk to them about how they feel about their senator saying that they'd rather do drugs than take care of their kids. So he's not going to give them any money like that's where I think the focus should be. But right now, the focus seems to be on did the White House go too far when they insinuated Manchin wasn't dealing in good faith? Was that the mo- like how whose feelings got hurt when and how did that contribute to the state that we're in right now? And I couldn't care less about that. Yeah. But that seemed to be the piece of this this audio from from the West Virginia radio station that everybody zeroed right in on is how mad he was at the White House. And I, I think I think that's that's kind of chasing after a little shiny thing right there. It did. And it, did, it was a disservice to the overall conversation. Like I talked to people you know, in the White House orbit on Capitol Hill yesterday, who had not actually heard the relevant pieces of that interview, which I you know, then sent them. But basically, he was saying that originally he was one for 1.5 trillion, but he was only he was willing to go to 1.75 in exchange for taxing the rich more. And he wanted the rich and corporations to finally pay their fair share after being off the hook in the Trump years. Okay, so yeah. he will trade progressives, like he'll give us a bigger bill if we give him something that we very much want to do also. Well, this sounds like this sounds like a great negotiation. Like, yes, right. I mean, yes, I agree. Let's give this man the win on that one, right? Right. Um, and he also, you know, I think in his Fox News interview on Sunday, in his subsequent you know, paper statement on Sunday, and then in this West Virginia radio interview, really made clear that his through line for interpreting all of this, again, if you're gonna read any intellectual consistency at all, is that the debt and deficit. And he okay. recalls this nostalgic moment in his first year in the Senate when Mike Mullen from the Joint Chiefs of Staff was mm-hmm. before a committee and was asked, what is the number one threat to America? And he was expecting some military answer. And he said, the national debt. Mm, and he's yeah. like, now the national debt is doubled and I just can't you know, participate in anything that would only you know, fund something for a couple of years when we know that our intent is to make it longer and it'll contribute to the debt. Um, so, you know, and then, and then news broke yesterday that what he submitted to the White House behind the scenes a couple of days ago was fully funding for 10 years, the climate provisions, the ACA, you know, the Obamacare subsidies, um, universal pre-K. Um, I think it's also true that he had the pharma, uh, lower price pharma, and the tax, the rich provisions. And what he probably jettisoned was childcare and paid family leave, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but those other things were funded for 10 years. And really, if you take what he said on West Virginia radio to its logical um, conclusion, you know, Ron Wyden has proposed this billionaire's tax that would raise a half a trillion dollars by finally taxing these billionaires who pay zero. And if you want to use most of that on um, deficit reduction and then use 100 billion of that to make sure that we continue the child tax credit, there's, there's, there's a basis here for a pretty good victory. Yeah. And if the, vi- yeah. the win that we give him is, okay, we you know, fund deficit reduction by taxing billionaires more and help children more in the process. That's a deal, right? Yeah, I'm not mad at that. Yeah. So we'll see if that's where it lands, but um, that's the silver lining that if you want to read any meaning into his words, um, I take from it.
So we actually we we pulled the audio from the West Virginia radio that you think should have been the focus yesterday. So so let me know which one of the clips you want to play. And I think that is actually probably something that people should should hear so that they're not just hearing <laughs> about about the tit for tat with the White House. So what do you think? Yeah, if you have any of the tax the rich stuff, I think that, that would be new information for a lot of people. Yeah. Why don't we play that first clip? The president and I were talking about, well, okay, 1.75 was the most. If we did a good tax reform, the only reason I even voted to get on reconciliation was to fix the taxes so that everybody paid their fair share. The ultra super wealthy, the corporations that weren't paying anything, everybody would pay their fair share and it would be competitive. It wouldn't be just retribution and be, uh, uh, you know, basically uh, payback because they got a big tax break in 2017. Okay, that sounds like a starting place. <laughs> I don't want people to, you know, if you're not in a good place about Joe Manchin, don't like him now. That's not the point of this. <laughs> yes, that's not happening to me right now. <laughs> but, but I am seeing a narrow pinprick of light in a path forward here that I did not see before. Right, if you accept that he is a fickle individual, let's play to him being fickle on this, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's give him this win. Um, and again, like the as someone who was very involved in the billionaire's tax, you know, preparation for months before it kind of went public, he was basically, you know, quote unquote, killed when Joe Manchin had an erratic statement where he seemed to pour cold water on it. And since then, my understanding is he's warmed up to the idea. Recently, about 219 economists said it would be good for the economy. The CBO said it would raise $557 billion. And, you know, he was the only block, so he can now support that and it would be very in line with everything he's talking about. So we'll see if that's where it goes. But, um, you know, we might have to take a hit on a couple fronts, but we can get most of the agenda through. And frankly, a lot of advocates who were, you know, pushing for things for years, like childcare and paid family leave, were saying that the way that it was being kind of contorted and structured to pass the Joe Manchin test was really defanging it as being easy and effective for a lot of people. That, you know, middle class and lower income parents would have to jump through so many red tape hoops to apply for it and qualify for it because of all this crazy means testing he was trying to implement that it might actually be better to do it down the road and get it right. So I, you know, I'm kind of agnostic on that point and, but, and it's sad that, you know, I would, I would like to have it, you know, at least the starting point in the bill, but if we get most of the big stuff and can come back for more, um, you know, it's better than, than where we thought we were in the worst of yesterday. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Something is better than nothing, which is I think it's been surprising to watch progressives understand that. And these like, like, I really very much want to retire the word moderates. There's nothing moderate about obstructionism. That's just not that's not what that word means. We should stop using words that don't mean the things that they actually mean to people when we're trying to convey something. But aside from that, it seems to have been the progressives who understand like the point of this and going back to the start of our conversation, the point is that people are hurting. Like the point is that people are not capable of keeping their heads above water right now. Um, progressives seem to get that, which is why they are willing to compromise. I think we, we spend a lot of time talking about hardliner progressives and difficult progressives and progressives being the thorn in the side of the White House. And like that just hasn't that hasn't happened this year. <laughs> that's that's not the truth of, of what's going on. It's progressives that have been willing to compromise down from a you know six trillion bill to a one point five trillion bill, and I, I, I it feels to me like they're doing it because they understand that something anything is better than nothing. Like as long as that thing doesn't come with a poison pill that's going to blow up the whole country in a couple of years, getting people some help is getting is better than getting people no help. 
how how have you watched the progressives sort of flex muscles this year? They they were responsible for initially combining the infrastructure bill with the big back better with the build back better reconciliation package. They then acquiesced to separating the two, which burned them. Um, how have you felt about the way the way they're being perceived, let's say this year? Yeah. I love that question. Um, I wish more people would kind of focus on that question when thinking about progressives. And you know, the, what you said about progressives caring about real people's lives has often been the thing that reduced our leverage in negotiations, right? Right. Where, right the other people are fine walking away from the table because they don't care. The other people will shoot the hostage and we won't. That's, right. yeah. you're already at a, like anybody who's ever seen a, a heist movie knows right. you're, you're at a loss if you're in love with the hostage and we actually care about people. So we're not willing to sacrifice them. So right. less so, leverage. All right. Right. So the thing that was so kind of a perfect aligning of stars um, for Pramila Jayapal and the Progressive Caucus a couple months ago was that the infrastructure bill had already passed the Senate, right? So they didn't have that hostage anymore. And at any point, the, the switch could be flipped and the House could pass it. You know, the, conceptually, the votes were there. And therefore, it was, it was a win-win scenario where, oh, we are not, and it's not like we had a fragile 50-vote majority in the Senate and Joe Manchin could be fickle the next week and abandon the infrastructure bill. It's like that was in the bag. The vote was taken. It was in right. the House's corner. So they were like, oh, before we pass that, Let's also make sure everybody's negotiating in good faith on the Build Back Better bill. So that I think it was brilliantly executed. I know that now there are some people who are um, saying, oh, the progressives caved too, too early. They shouldn't have done that. I think the, the proper analogy would be, you know, with the old space shuttles, you have the booster rocket that gets you into space and then the booster rocket goes away. You know, there, there, there was a, a half-life <laughs> to how sustainable their Dignan was, and what they basically got, you know, what getting into space was, was they got Joe Manchin to the table, they got President Biden more invested, they got, you know, even the Abigail Spanbergers and more moderate House members, you know, all in on saying, we will vote for this bill, which was not a commitment before, you know, which then allowed it to pass the House. And it basically got to a point where it's now a two-person conversation between Biden and Manchin, as opposed to having many question marks all across the map that would likely result in Build Back Better falling apart or becoming, you know, one-tenth of its size. So right. they, they, they got Joe Manchin to the negotiation table. They got Joe Manchin to put more, or Joe Biden to put more skin in the game. And now, you know, we're in space trying to, you know, I don't know, <laughs> help me land so, this. One. <laughs> so they're the booster rocket in this metaphor, but they can yeah. only take us to the space in which negotiations can happen. They can't actually persuade Joe Manchin to do anything. But like, do you... I've been so frustrated at, well, at the media, at everybody, really. I mean, for, for, for the way that they talk about progressives, for the way that they, they misunderstand progressives, um, for the way that progressives are always portrayed as unproductive, unhelpful bomb throwers from the side. They're focused on slogans that don't matter. They're, I mean, you, you know what people say about progressives. Shouldn't this year put that to rest? <laughs> Like we've just not seen any of that. Like now that progressives actually have the muscle to do what you just described, to set the stage for the president's agenda, they haven't behaved that way at all. Are you seeing any sort of cracks? Are you seeing any understanding in, in the media, in, in the ecosystem about you know what, what, what motivates progressives, why they do what they do? Uh, I think, yeah, calling it a crack is a good way of putting it because we, the problem is not solved, but we're making some progress, right? I think- okay. Pramila Jayapal is a more credible figure now than she was three months ago. 
right? Certainly, and, and she should Jake, be, yeah. Jake Sherman's in kind of chattering class of the world actually mm -hmm. will attend her press conference now and take her seriously, which is good, um, you know, which is more of a statement about how they viewed progressives, not her before. Yes. Um, so the Progressive Caucus is now seen as more of a heavyweight than it was three months ago or three years ago or 10 years ago. So that's, that's good. I do still think that you're right about the perniciousness of the moderate versus progressive framing, right? I mean, on the issues, if you look at the polling, the center of the bell curve of America is generally what progressives stand for, right? It is a right. mainstream position. And if anything, those who call themselves moderate are more accurately described as corporate aligned or the outliers of the party or the populace, not you know, center of the bell curve. So I think just our, I actually don't like the word left because left implies that you're on kind of the fringe outskirts. Yeah, that there's a center, the right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's moving in the, in the right direction, but we're not there yet. And one of the ironies, if we want to kind of focus on a language that I, this makes me really frustrated is, you know, we hear this in primary sometimes when people are belittling the, the progressive candidate and saying, I just want to get stuff done, right? It's the get stuff done people versus the progressives. And what we've seen here are the progressives who have most wanted to get right. stuff done, as you say, for regular people. And it's the supposed get stuff done people, including the people who are part of the problem solvers caucus. And you know, <laughs> they, do, they do actually call themselves that. That is real. Yeah. And they have been the ones causing the problems, right? Yeah. <laughs> like if, if their mantra was get stuff done, this would have been passed in July. Right. And they've been, you know, these again, corporate aligned Democrats have been the obstructors. So you know, we need to just discard this idea that progressives are the bomb throwers who are inhibiting progress, recognize that in most fights, they're the ones who actually want to get stuff done. And, you know, in the most important fights, whether it's voting rights or, um, you know, helping people with childcare and lower price prescriptions and home care and climate change, it's the corporate line Democrats who are getting in the way. So hopefully we'll have that be more recognized by everyone and, you know, let us let us take that energy into the new year, shall we? Adam Green, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I'm sure you have had a hell of a week and I hope you get some rest over the holiday. Same to you, Jess. Thanks so much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.